Hello, everybody. I'm Radio Johnny, and welcome to another Recovery Radio broadcast recorded live at the Latov Recovery Center. Recovery Radio is an outreach of the Latov Recovery Center located at 531 Main Street in Moscow. You can contact the LRC by phone at 208-883-1045 or by email at latovrecoverycenter at gmail.com. You can find them on the web at latovrecoverycenter.org and on Facebook. Recovery Radio's purpose is to share with our community how addiction and behavioral health disorders affect us all and to share the recovery resources available in our area along with the personal stories of people in and around recovery highlighting their experience, insight, and hope for continuing recovery. And like I said, I'm Radio Johnny, and we're going to jump into the uh, January calendar here. And uh, first off, we have the Harm Reduction Safe Syringe Exchange and Supplies, and that's uh, available weekdays by appointment. Recovery Coaching, Peer Support Online, phone available, call to schedule, that's weekdays by appointment again. Vandal Recovery at the Center on the University of Idaho campus is weekdays from 8.30 till 4.30. Alcoholics Anonymous is every day at noon at the Latah Recovery Center. Narcotics Anonymous is every day at 7 p.m. Sexaholics Anonymous is Monday, Tuesdays, and Thursdays at 8.30 and Saturdays at 9 a.m. The AA Monday Men's Meeting is Mondays at 5.30. The re-entry support group with Miranda is Mondays at 6.30. AA Women's Meeting is live at St. Mark's Episcopal Church and available on Zoom through the uh, Latah Recovery Center website. Uh, and that's Mondays at 7.30 p.m. Recovery Peer Volunteer Meeting is the last Monday of every month at 6. The grief group meets the first Tuesday of every month at 5. The Board of Directors meeting is the second Tuesday of every month at 3.45 and the public is invited to attend. Vandal All Recovery meeting at the Center on the U of I campus is Tuesdays at 6 p.m. The Events Committee meets Wednesdays at 2. New Volunteer Orientation is Wednesdays at 3. Overeaters Anonymous meets Wednesdays at 5.30. Oscar Mike, Vets Coffee and Conversation is Wednesdays at 6.30. Recovery Radio on KRFP 90.3 FM, you're listening right now, is Thursdays at about 1.15. Movie and Game Night, Thursdays from 5 till 8. The Intern Meeting is Fridays at 2. All Recovery Meeting, live and on Zoom, is on Fridays from 5 till 5.45. Yoga with Katrin is Fridays at 5.30. Al-Anon Live and on Zoom is Fridays at 8. And Alcoholics Anonymous Sunday Morning Group meets at the Campus Christian Center and is available on Zoom through the aa.org district. No, it's not aa.org. It's available at the district22aa.org. Uh, website. You can pick up the link from there off their schedule and zoom in with us Sunday mornings at 9.30. And a uh, couple of announcements. One, we have free Narcan. 
uh, check with the staff if you'd like to have a dose of this life-saving opiate reversal drug. And uh, Zoom meetings are accessed by going to our calendar at LetalRecoveryCenter.org and clipping on the group name. Follow the instructions from there. If you have a problem, give us a call. We'll help you out, 208-883-1045. And a big deal coming up is our annual fundraiser, uh, emphasis on the fun. Uh, We need your help. It's a fantastic fundraiser, and it's happening on this coming March 1st. Uh, Our fundraising breakfast and dessert both need table captains. Table captain's job is to invite seven other friends to a free meal. During the event, we discuss our programs and ask for a donation. Keynote speaker is Rosie Andueza, the State of Idaho's Substance Use Disorder Single State Authority. That's a mouthful. This is a fast-paced event that you'll be proud to be associated with. We promise you and your friends a great meal and an interesting program, and that's at the Best Western University Inn on March 1st. If you can help, you'd like to be a table captain, email Daryl at LetaRecoveryCenter at gmail.com, and he will get you set up. And today, I'm going to uh, continue on with something I started last fall, which was uh, doing some readings from the... uh, what we call the big book in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's actually the book Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the basic text for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I've gone through uh, Bill's story and the first three, which is part of the first three chapters. And today I'm going to uh, dive into the chapter We Agnostics. And preface this a little bit, if you listen to the prior readings, Bill's story basically tells what happened to Bill and how he managed to find sobriety through a spiritual program of action. And uh, then the chapters go on to, uh, you know, more about alcoholism, to describe what alcoholism is and uh, how it affects people. And then we move into We Agnostics, where Uh, The book addresses uh, things like the concept of God or higher power. It's a pretty interesting thing, so I'm going to go ahead and get started right now. Chapter 4, We Agnostics. In the preceding chapters, you have learned something of alcoholism. We hope we have made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and non-alcoholic. If, when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely or even... When drinking, if you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably alcoholic. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. To one who feels he is an atheist or agnostic, such an experience seems impossible. But to continue as he is means disaster, especially if he is an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. To be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face. But it isn't so difficult. About half of our original fellowship were of exactly that type. At first, some of us tried to avoid the issue, hoping against hope we were not true alcoholics. But after a while, we had to face the fact that we must find a spiritual basis of life or else. Perhaps it's going to be that way with you. But cheer up. 
Something like half of us thought we were atheists or agnostics. Our experience shows that you need not be disconcerted. If a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, many of us would have recovered long ago. But we found that such codes and philosophies did not save us, no matter how much we tried. We could wish to be moral. We could wish to be philosophically comforted. In fact, we could will all these things with all our might, but the needed power wasn't there. Our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how do we find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problems. That means we have written a book which we believe to be spiritual as well as moral. And it means, of course, that we are going to talk about God. Here difficulty arises with agnostics. Many times we talk to a new man and watch his hope rise as we discuss his alcoholic problems and explain our fellowship. But his face falls when we speak of spiritual matters, especially when we mention God. For we have reopened a subject which our man thought he had neatly evaded or ignored entirely. We know how he feels. We have shared his honest doubt and prejudice. Some of us have been violently anti-religious. To others, the word God brought up a particular idea of him with which someone had tried to impress them during childhood. Perhaps we rejected this particular conception because it seemed inadequate. With that rejection, we imagined we had abandoned the God idea entirely. We were bothered with the thought that faith and dependence upon a power beyond ourselves was somewhat weak, even cowardly. We looked upon this world of warring individuals, warring theological systems, and inexplicable calamity with deep skepticism. We looked askance at many individuals who claimed to be godly. How could a supreme being have anything to do with it all? And who could comprehend a supreme being anyhow? Yet, in other moments, we found ourselves thinking, when enchanted by a starlit night, who then made all this? There was a feeling of awe and wonder, but it was fleeting and soon lost. Yes, we of agnostic temperament have had these thoughts and experiences. Let us make haste to reassure you. We found that as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commenced to get results, even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power which is God. Much to our relief, we discovered we did not need to consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and to effect a contact with him. As soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction, provided we took other simple steps. We found that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek him. To us, the realm of the spirit is broad, roomy, 
all-inclusive, never exclusive, or forbidding to those who earnestly seek it. It is open, we believe, to all men. When, therefore, we speak to you of God, we mean your own conception of God. This applies to two other spiritual expressions which you find in this book. Do not let any prejudice you may have against spiritual terms deter you from honestly asking yourself what they mean to you. At the start, this was all we needed to commence spiritual growth, to affect our first conscious relationship with God as we understood Him. Afterward, we found ourselves accepting many things which then seemed entirely out of reach. That was growth, but if we wished to grow, we had to begin somewhere. So we used our own conception, however limited it was. We need to ask ourselves but one short question. Do I now believe, or am I even willing to believe, that there is a power greater than myself? As soon as a man can say that he does believe or is willing to believe, we empathetically assure him that he is on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. That was great news to us, for we had assumed we could not make use of spiritual principles unless we accepted many things on faith which seemed difficult to believe. When people presented us with the spiritual approaches, how frequently did we all say, I wish I had what that man has. I'm sure it would work if I could only believe as he believes, but I cannot accept as surely true the many articles of faith which are so plain to him. So it was comforting to learn that we could commence at a simpler level. Besides a seemingly inability to accept much on faith, we often found ourselves handicapped by obstinacy, sensitivity, and an unreasoning prejudice. Many of us have been so touchy that even casual reference to spiritual things makes us bristle with antagonism. This sort of thinking had to be abandoned. Though some of us resisted, we found no great difficulty in casting aside such feelings. Faced with the alcoholic destruction, we soon became as open-minded on spiritual matters as we had tried to be on other questions. In this respect, alcohol was a great persuader. It finally beat us into a state of reasonableness. Sometimes this was a tedious process. We hope no one else will be prejudiced for as long as some of us were. The reader may still ask why he should believe in a power greater than himself. We think there are good reasons. Let's have a look at some of them. The practical individual of today is a stickler for facts and results. Nevertheless, the 20th century readily accepts theories of all kinds, provided they are firmly grounded in fact. We have numerous theories, for example, about electricity. Everybody believes them without a murmur of doubt. Why this ready acceptance? Simply because it is impossible to explain what we see, feel, direct, and use without a reasonable assumption as a starting point. And I'm going to step out for a second and uh, remind the reader or the listeners that this uh, book was written in 1939. So electricity, although it had been around for quite a while prior to this, still a pretty amazing thing that you could walk into a room, turn a switch, and there was light. Okay, back to it. 
Everybody nowadays believes in scores of assumptions for which there are good evidence, but no perfect visual proof. And does not science demonstrate that visual proof is the weakest proof? It is being constantly revealed as mankind studies the material world that outward appearances are not inward reality at all. To illustrate, the prosaic steel girder is a mass of whirling electrons whirling around each other at incredible speed. These tiny bodies are governed by precise laws, and these laws hold true throughout the material world. Science tells us so. We have no reason to doubt it. When, however, the perfectly logical assumption is suggested that underneath the material world and life as we see it, there is an all-powerful, guiding, creative intelligence. Right there, our perverse streak comes into the surface, and we laboriously set out to convince ourselves it isn't so. We read wordy books and indulge in windy arguments, thinking we believe this universe needs no God to explain it. Were our contentions true, it would follow that life originated out of nothing, means nothing, and proceeds nowhere. Instead of regarding ourselves as intelligent agents, spearheads of God's ever-advancing creation, we agnostics and atheists choose to believe that our human intelligence was the last word, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end of all. Rather vain of us, wasn't it? We, who have traveled this dubious path, beg you to lay aside prejudice, even against organized religion. We have learned that whatever the human frailties of various faiths may be, those faiths have given purpose and direction to millions. People of faith have a logical idea of what life is about. Actually, we used to have no reasonable conception whatever. We used to amuse ourselves by cynically dissecting spiritual beliefs and practices when we might have observed that many spiritual-minded persons of all races, colors, and creeds were demonstrating a degree of stability, happiness, and usefulness which we should have sought ourselves. Instead, we looked at the human defects of these people and sometimes used their shortcoming as a basis of wholesale condemnation. We talked of intolerance while we were intolerant ourselves. We missed the reality and the beauty of the forest because we were diverted by the ugliness of some of its trees. We never gave the spiritual side of life a fair hearing. In our personal stories, you will find a wide variation in the way each teller approaches and conceives of the power which is greater than himself. Whether we agree with a particular approach or conception seems to make little difference. Experience has taught us that these are matters about which, for our purpose, we need not be worried. They are questions for each individual to settle for himself. On one proposition, however, these men and women are strikingly agreed. Every one of them has gained access to and believes in a power greater than himself. This power has, in each case, accomplished the miraculous, the humanly impossible. As a celebrated American statesman put it, let's look at the record. Here are thousands of men and women, worldly indeed, they flatly declare that since they have come to believe in a power greater than themselves, to take a certain attitude toward that power and to do certain simple things, there has been a revolutionary change in their way of living and thinking. 
In the face of collapse and despair, in the face of the total failure of their human resources, they have found that a new power, peace, happiness, and sense of direction flowed into them. This happened soon after they wholeheartedly met a few simple requirements. Once confused and baffled by the seeming futility of existence, they showed the underlying reasons why they were making heavy going of life. Leaving aside the drink question, they tell you why living was so unsatisfactory. They show how the change came over them. When many hundreds of people are able to say that the consciousness of the presence of God is today the most important fact of their lives, they present a powerful reason why one should have faith. This world of ours has made a more material progress in the last century than in all the millenniums which went before. Almost everyone knows the reason. Students of ancient history tell us that the intellect of men in those days was equal to the best of today, yet in ancient times, material progress was painfully slow. The spirit of modern scientific inquiry, research, and invention was almost unknown. In the realm of the material, men's minds were fettered by superstition, tradition, and all sorts of fixed ideas. Some of the contemporaries of Columbus thought around Earth preposterous. Other came near to putting Galileo to death for his astronomical heresies. We asked ourselves this. Are not some of us just as biased and unreasonable about the realm of the spirit as were the ancients about the realm of the material? Even in the present century, American newspapers were afraid to print an account of the Wright brothers' first successful flight at Kitty Hawk. Had not all efforts at flight failed before? Did not Professor Langley's flying machine go to the bottom of the Potomac River? Was it not true that the best mathematical minds had proved that man could never fly? Had not the people said God had reserved this privilege to the birds? Only 30 years later, the conquest of the air was almost an old story, and airplane travel was in full swing. But in most fields, our generation has witnessed complete liberation of our thinking. Show any longshoreman a Sunday supplement describing a proposal to explore the moon by means of a rocket, and he will say, I bet they do it. Maybe not so long, either. Is not our age characterized by the ease with which we discard old ideas for new, by the complete readiness with which we throw away the theory or gadget which does not work for something new which does? We had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems the same readiness to change our point of view. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. Was not a basic solution of these bedevilments more important than whether we should see newsreels of lunar flight? Of course it was. When we saw others solve their problems by a simple reliance upon the spirit of the universe, we had to stop doubting the power of God. Our ideas did not work, but the God idea did. The Wright brothers, almost childish faith that they could build a machine which would fly as the mainspring of their accomplishment. Without that, nothing could have happened. 
we agnostics and atheists were sticking to the idea that self-sufficiency would solve our problems. When others showed us that God's sufficiency worked with them, we began to feel like those who had insisted the rights would never fly. Logic is great stuff. We liked it. We still like it. It is not by chance that we were given the power to reason, to examine the evidence of our senses, and to draw a conclusion. That is one of man's magnificent attributes. We agnostically inclined would not feel satisfied with the proposal which does not lend itself to reasonable approach and interpretation. Hence, we are at pains to tell why we think our present faith is reasonable and why we think it more sane and logical to believe than not to believe and why we say our former thinking was soft and mushy when we threw up our hands in doubt and said, we don't know. When we became alcoholics, crushed by a self-imposed crisis we could not postpone or evade, we had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? Arrived at this point, we were squarely confronted with the question of faith. We couldn't duck the issue. Some of us had already walked far over the bridge of reason towards the desired shore of faith. The outlines and the promise of the new land have brought luster to our tired eyes and fresh courage to flagging spirits. Friendly hands had stretched out in welcome. We were grateful that reason had brought us so far, but somehow we couldn't quite step ashore. Perhaps we had been leaning too heavily on reason that last mile, and we did not like to lose our support. That was natural, but let us think a little more closely. Without knowing it, had we not been brought to where we stood by a certain kind of faith? Or did we not believe in our own reasoning? Did we not have confidence in our ability to think? What was that but a sort of faith? Yes, we had been faithful, abjectly faithful to the God of reason. So, in one way or another, we discovered that faith had been involved all the time. We found, too, that we had been worshippers. What a state of mental goose flesh that used to bring on! Have we not variously worshipped people, sentiment, things, money, and ourselves? And then, with a better motive, had we not worshipfully beheld the sunset, the sea, or a flower? Who of us had not loved something or somebody? How much did these feelings, these loves, these worships have to do with pure reason? Little or nothing, we saw at last. Were not these things the tissue out of which our lives were constructed? Did not these feelings, after all, determine the course of our existence? It was impossible to say we had no capacity for faith, or love, or worship. In one form or another, we have been living by faith and little else. Imagine life without faith. Were nothing left but pure reason, it wouldn't be life. But we believed in life. Of course we did. We could not prove life in the sense that you can prove a straight line is the shortest distance between two points, yet there it was. Could we still say the whole thing was nothing but a mass of electrons, created out of nothing, meaning nothing? 
whirling on to a destiny of nothingness? Of course we couldn't. The electron themselves seemed more intelligent than that, at least so the chemist said. Hence we saw that reason isn't everything. Neither is reason, as most of us use it, entirely dependable, though it may emanate from our best minds. What about people who proved that man could never fly? Yet we have been seeing another kind of flight, a spiritual liberation from this world. People who rose above their problems. They said God made these things possible, and we only smiled. We had seen spiritual release, but like to tell ourselves it wasn't true. Actually, we were fooling ourselves, for deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or other, it is there. For faith in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. We finally saw faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. We found that the great reality deep down within us. In the last analysis, it is only there that he may be found. It was so with us. We can only clear the ground a bit. If our testimony helps sweep away prejudice, enables you to think honestly, encourages you to search diligently within yourself, then, if you wish, you can join us on the broad highway. With this attitude, you cannot fail. The consciousness of your beliefs is sure to come to you. In this book, you will read the experience of a man who thought he was an atheist. His story is so interesting that some of it should be told now. His change of heart was dramatic, convincing, and moving. Our friend was a minister's son. He attended church school where he became rebellious at what he thought was an overdose of religious education. For years thereafter, he was dogged by trouble and frustration, business failure, insanity, fatal illness, suicide. These calamities in his immediate family embittered and depressed him. Post-war delusionment, ever more serious alcoholism, impending mental and physical collapse brought him to the point of self-destruction. One night, when confined in a hospital, he was approached by an alcoholic who had known a spiritual experience. Our friend's gore rose as he bitterly cried out, If there is a God, he certainly hasn't done anything for me. But later, alone in his room, he asked himself this question. Is it possible that all the religious people I have known are wrong? While pondering the answer, he felt as though he lived in hell. Then, like a thunderbolt, a great thought came. It crowded out all else. Who are you to say there is no God? This man recounts that he tumbled out of bed to his knees. In a few seconds, he was overwhelmed by a conviction of the presence of God. It poured over and through him with the certainty and majesty of a great tide at flood. The barriers he had built through the years were swept away. He stood in the presence of the infinite power and love. He had stepped from the bridge to shore.
For the first time, he lived in conscious companionship with his creator. Thus was our friend's cornerstone fixed in place. No later vicissitude has shaken it. His alcohol problem was taken away. That very night, years ago, it disappeared. Save for a few brief moments of temptation, the thought of drink has never returned and at such times as a great revulsion has risen up in him. Seemingly, he could not drink even if he would. God had restored his sanity. What is this but a miracle of healing? Yet, its elements are simple. Circumstances made him willing to believe. He humbly offered himself to his maker, then he knew. Even so, God restored us all to our right minds. To this man, the revelation was sudden. Some of us who grow into it more slowly, but he has come to all who have honestly sought him. When we drew near to him, he disclosed himself to us. And that's the end of the chapter. Now, that was a lot of reading, so uh, I'm going to take a little break right here, listen to uh, some music and come back and finish up with a few thoughts and a little more reading. And uh, you are listening to KRFP 90.3 FM, Moscow Pullman.
Norman Greenbaum with the little spirit in the sky. Welcome back. And there's one more thing that uh, I need to go over. In the middle of that uh, chapter, there's a footnote that says, uh, refer to the spiritual experience, which is in the, I think, second appendix in the back of the book. And it goes as follows. It says, the terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which, upon careful reading, shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yes, it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God-consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James called the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspecting inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. 
our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most empathetically, we wish to say that an alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. And finally, what does it all mean to me? Well, my spiritual experience has been like described uh, in the book as a, uh, a slow-growing spiritual experience, the educational variety, I think they call it. And that's worked out just fine for me. Uh, in the beginning, it was tough. I had to be willing to be willing to be willing. And fortunately, I had a, a pretty wise sponsor who just asked me a question when I was struggling. He said, you know, are you at least willing to believe that I have a higher power that I can rely on. And well, it seemed like he had it pretty well together. I mean, he hadn't drank in a long time and he seemed reasonably happy. So I said, yeah, sure, I think I can believe that. And he told me, that's great. That's, that's all you need to make a start of it. You don't have to have a big religious experience or uh, go back to the church you used to, although you may want to do that. A lot of people have uh, in the... Uh, in a further appendix in the book, uh, it's called The Religious View on AA. Different theologians have said that AA makes poor Catholics into better Catholics. And there's some other quotes back there that you can read. And it's, uh, it's not a program that has to be mutually exclusive of any other spiritual uh, program you're working or religious program. Uh, I have friends in AA who are devout Catholics. I have friends in AA who are Buddhists. Uh, I have friends in AA that are Muslims. It all works together, and it just makes for a stronger spiritual experience, which is what they describe in the book as what is needed to overcome the powerlessness over alcohol and is basically relying on that power greater than ourselves. I have a close friend in the program who, when he first came in, he just absolutely, he was totally atheistic, and uh, he could not grasp the concept of a higher power or a power greater than himself. His very wise sponsor said, well, you know, you and I are a power greater than you, right? And yeah, okay, he agreed. And he said, okay, well, we'll work with that from a starting point. So you don't need to have a religious pedigree. You don't need to have that uh, burning bush experience. All you need to have is, you know, willingness, honesty, and openness. And, and actually, I think they say uh, honesty, opening, and willingness. And the acronym for that is HOW. This is how it works, you know. 
get honest with yourself, be open-minded, and be willing to try something that just might work for you. Because if you're like me, if you have an alcohol problem and you're like me, or you know somebody who has an alcohol problem, we tried everything. Our willpower didn't do it. Uh, different religious endeavors maybe didn't do it. Uh, everything, you know, all the self-help books we read, uh, every attempt we had to get sober and stay sober for a period of time didn't work. For me, the only thing that did work was this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So if you're looking for an answer, maybe you can find it here. You don't have to go very far into the phone book to find a number for AA. You can uh, go online, and our local area is district22aa.org. There's a schedule there. There's listing. There's Zoom meetings. You you don't want to feel awkward walking into a room your first meeting. Maybe check out some Zoom meetings, see what they're all about. It can only help, uh, and honestly, it saved my life. So take uh, take that along with you and put it in your pocket. Well, I'm at the end of my time here. Uh, Thanks to everybody for listening. And uh, we'll have another show for you next week. And until then, remember, if you think you have a problem with alcohol or other drugs or behavioral health disorder, you do. (laughs) 